Welcome to High Noon, where we discuss controversial subjects with interesting people. My guest today is Eric Kaufman. He's a political scientist at Birkbeck College, University of London. Uh, he's also an adjunct fellow with the Manhattan Institute. He's the author of several books focusing on demography, religious uh, identity, national identity, cultural politics, all things that are very um, critical, it seems critical fault lines in, in our politics more and more as of late. Um, but I wanted to kick this off, Eric, uh, with you by asking you about your recent report that you put out through the Manhattan Institute um, that, that showed basically two things. One, that there's a huge generational component to whatever we want to term it, wokeness. Um, and you called it, I think, uh, cultural socialism or social, yeah, cultural socialism. Um, and then two, uh, you showed one of the interesting aspects that I, we didn't talk about in this little Manhattan Institute spaces that we did together was actually how ordinary voters rank cultural concerns. Um, you just give us like a start us off with just a little overview of that report um, and those two aspects and what what they show about our politics? Yeah, thanks, Ines. Uh, um, yeah, so really what I was trying to get at is, is public opinion on cancel culture and to some degree critical race theory. And what it shows, first of all, is there's kind of a split. There, first of all, is a, a collision between um, belief in free speech, for example, and belief in, in other values like emotional safety and equality of outcomes. Um, and that clash is really manifest in, in a lot of the questions that I asked on this large survey I did. And I, I sort of group the responses into two groups. One is cultural socialism and the other is cultural liberalism. That, now those terms might be a bit confusing. To some degree, what I mean by cultural liberalism is kind of a classical liberal view on culture, which is to do with free speech, due process, equal treatment, scientific reason. That sort of worldview contrasting very much with what I call cultural socialist worldview, which prioritizes protecting the emotional safety and protecting from psychological harm, historically disadvantaged minority groups, and also seeking equal outcome across uh, equal outcomes, not just equal treatment, but especially equal outcomes across identity groups. Now, with those two concepts in mind, we can look at a question like, should James Damore, the Google engineer uh, who was fired for questioning the firm's gender uh, equity policy, I mean, should he have been fired, for example, uh, for questioning this on an internal memo? Um, and what you see is that approximately two thirds of those under the age of 25 think he should have been fired and barely a third of those over the age of 55. And I think that's quite revealing of the trends that I was seeing time and time again, which is that the young population, uh, particularly under 25, really does believe in cultural social, or sorry, when I say the young population, I mean a, lar a considerably larger share of that Gen Z population believes in cultural socialism. Uh, they're still split, but the split favors cultural socialism, I would argue. Whereas for other generations, particularly Generation X and above, it's mainly cultural liberals. So the first thing is, the younger you go, the more support there is for cultural socialism against cultural liberalism. And therefore, people who think cancel culture is a passing fad just because I noticed New York Times had an editorial out today, you probably saw that, and Harper's and The Atlantic and The Economist. Well, just because the mainstream media is starting to talk about this doesn't mean suddenly this is going to go away. And there is this view that, well, this is a blip. I'm arguing it's baked into the generational cake. And as those generations enter the workforce, I don't believe they're just going to grow out of their cultural socialist values. I think they're going to try and institutionalize and overturn the cultural liberal values that are there in many 
organizations. And we've seen evidence of that already with at places like the New York Times, although it doesn't look like they've fully succeeded, I guess. Um, so yeah, I think that's sort of point one. Point two is really this question about electoral, the electoral reward that'll go to essentially the Republicans if they are able to place this issue front and center. Um, what the what the evidence really showed was that this is a relatively high-ranking issue. If you take cancel culture, political correctness, critical race theory, the whole bundle of issues around the culture wars, that is now a sort of upper mid-ranking issue for the population. So uh, roughly a third of, of Americans uh, placing that issue um, in their top three uh, out of a basket of nine issues. For Republicans, it's almost half of Republicans saying that that is a top three issue for them. And it's it's just below immigration. So this is, a, 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 this is gonna start deciding elections. The other thing, um, if you look at opinion on critical race theory and cancel culture, it splits the left and unites the right. So it's a perfect wedge issue if the Republicans get the conversation onto this cultural terrain that just splits, puts the Democrats in a very tight spot by splitting their electorate and it unifies Republicans. So something like teaching kids that the US is a racist society is overwhelmingly strongly opposed by Republican voters and by Democrats, they split about five different ways. Some thinks it's a a really good idea. Some think it's a really bad idea. There's some in the middle. They're really sort of fragmented. So in a way, what that tells you is a party, like if the Republicans go after that, they can make capital out of that and split their opponents. So I would expect, based on this kind of polling, that this issue is going to become more and more important in, in national politics. Yeah, the, the phrase I've been using to describe this and, um, you know, prior to reading your report, I really had more of a gut feeling than actual empirical evidence that your report um, provides for this, but that, that the culture war really is the big tent. And in fact, that um, sort of conservative consultants or GOP consultants uh, within the Beltway um, have been wrong for decades about uh, which issues are actually likely to draw moderate voters and even some Democratic voters to the Republican Party. They have been focused on the economic issues when it turns out that, in fact, the cultural issues are there. They have a lot of heat around them, but they're actually less divisive in a sort of electoral sense um, than a lot of the economic issues are, by which I mean the center and even the center left um, seems to side much more with conservatives on a lot of these culture war issues. The difference is the very, very loud people um, uh, on on the, let's say, the far left on on sort of the woke left. Um, those people seem to have an enormous amount, not just in terms of like how loud they are and what voice they have, but institutional power, right? Um, yeah. You know, th there's this op-ed now in the New York Times, but institutionally, the New York Times pushed out Barry Weiss, right? Um, and sure. And was unable to, to sort of, uh, I guess, stem exactly the tide. And even in other uh, institutions, even media or institutions that used to lean right, the Wall Street Journal, for example, publicly had an issue with its younger reporting staff saying, you know, what you publish on the opinion side is unacceptable, right? There, there does seem to be this generational issue you're pointing to where as millennials now get into sort of middle management and Gen Z coming up behind them are filling the lower ranks of, of let's say, corporations or even agencies in the government, this is going to get worse, not better, even though we get sort of the Barry Weisses of the world have sort of have switched teams or to the John McWhorters of the world have kind of switched teams on this one. 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, you're you're totally right. And first point is that that progressive. There was a report by Morin Common called the Hidden Tribes Report, uh, which was very comprehensive, lots of polling, segmented the U.S. population into different political groups. One of which was called the Progressive Activists. They make up. Eight percent only of the U.S. population, but they're sort of five to six times more likely to post politically on social media, far more likely than the average American to be involved in politics. So they are incredibly influential. They live in a metropolitan areas, very highly educated, wealthy, whiter than average. This is a group that, uh, yeah, they're they're dominant in foundations, universities, uh, Hollywood, big tech, etc. All, all of these sort of opinion forming organizations. Uh, and that's true in other countries as well. It's a similar demographic that's very highly motivated behind this ideology. Um, and you're right about the age profile too. I mean, if you, I mean, you look at the FIRE surveys, Foundation for Individual Rights and in Education. They've got a sur two surveys now covering something like 55,000 uh, undergraduate students in the top 150 institutions, um, and the sort of it's something between two thirds and 80% or 80, 85% of students who say they don't want to have certain speakers even be invited to campus. So people you know, who might say BLM is a hate group or who might say no one should ever be allowed to have an abortion for any reason. I mean, yes, those are extreme positions, but to say they should never be allowed onto campus to speak, right? So you were getting a very strong uh, cultural socialist responses amongst elite students. Now that's obviously a certain demographic, but I think it's indicative. I mean, there have been a, there's been studies using uh, GSS data, which goes back to the 1972. Uh, and so you can see over time, starting around the year 2000, there was a trend towards greater liberalism with younger and educated people being more liberal. Starting around 2000, for certain questions such as letting a racist speak, uh, those there had been growing toleration for that, along with grow, growing toleration for letting a homosexual and a militarist and all these other groups speak, starts to turn in 2000 and continues and continues. And now where we are is, is a position where the on the identity issues, um, younger people are much less liberal. Uh, and so that is not just because they're young. That we can compare 18 year olds in 2000 and 1970 with 18 year olds in 2020, and we can show that the 18 year olds in 2020 are less liberal, less tolerant than the 18 year olds in 2000. So, uh, this is not a flash in the pan. I think it's actually going to be uh, through generational replacement, it's going to be shaking up many organizations. And I don't, I'm not confident these organizations are going to be able to resist. I mean, I know there has been some counteractivity and counter mobilization in these organizations now, but what's going to, what's the situation going to be in 10 years, 20 years? I have no confidence that that's going to continue. Yeah. Even, even in sort of my most optimistic uh, moments of projection of the future of the United States, I think of it almost as like a, a snake digesting like a large animal, right? That the, right. the American body politic is already has at least a generation and a half, probably two generations of people who do like not just as a matter of, of um, kind of cynical power grabbing, but really do deeply believe um, in the underlying principles of wokeness or however one wants mm. to call it cultural socialism. Um, and that's even if you, uh, even if, if, if everything that I wanted to do in terms of, of um, structurally and, and politically happens, that that's still going to be a very large animal for the body politic to di digest, particularly as millennials are the biggest generation in American history. Um, but 
the first thing I guess to do when you're in a hole is to stop digging. And the Academy really seems to be ground zero for a, a lot of the, this ideology. So yeah. you know, how should, how should we think about reforming the Academy? Um, how, how has the UK done it differently than us? Or how does the UK think about it differently than, than um, us in America? And, you know, what can we do in America to reform our Academy, which really seems to be, the source of so much of this bleeding out both down into K-12 and then outward into corporations and, and all the institutions we just discussed. Um, yeah, and you're absolutely right. It does start in the universities and you can track it using big data on keywords very much. In the 80s, you already start to see this ideology in universities. Now, it leaks out. And, and right now, I actually think it's it's Hollywood and celebrity culture and influencers that are really driving this and, and university and school doesn't really make that much difference in socializing young people. However, the ideas coming out of those elite institutions are, are have been influential now. And they are also the ground zero of cancel culture as well. And what I would say is I am of the view that two things. One, universities are not like a marketplace. It's not like media, for example, where you could set up a podcast or Substack, and to some degree, good ideas can drive out the bad through competition, the free market. Universities aren't like that. Reputations take a long time to build. It's very hard to start a new university. So you don't get the market-based discipline and the market-based creative destruction. So what you have to look for is, in my view, um, is essentially government intervention and outside intervention. I do not believe that private solutions such as trying to find new universities. That's great. I'm involved in the University of Austin, but that's not really going to solve it. What, what you actually need is governments, um, especially in, with government uh, public education, being able to go into the universities and say, uh, you've got to uphold free speech. You've got to promote free speech. If you do not do that, you will be fined and you could be sued. And essentially, um, you must follow the guidance that we as the regulator put out. Um, that is essentially the approach that uh, Britain has taken with the, with the uh, Academic Freedom Bill, which has gone through two readings, and I expect to be ready in the fall. Um, what this does is it sets up an office uh, of uh, academic freedom on the sector regulator, which is going to be able to proactively uh, scrutinize and audit universities. So if, if universities' policies on harassment and bringing the institution into disrepute and all these other policies that they use to silence dissenters. Those policies are not compliant. They're going to be compelled to rewrite those policies. People are going to be allowed to appeal around their university to an ombudsman to essentially make the university back off. Um, so this is really going to change the game. It's already changed the game. I can tell you that in a number of universities, they have already started to sing a different song because they know they're being scrutinized. That is the only way you get universities to behave is when the administrators are approached by activists to cancel someone and they say to the activists, well, we can't do it because of this government regulation or we're going to be fined. So we, even though we agree with you, we can't actually do what you want. That's what we, where we need to get to in terms of universities behaving on free speech and, and academic freedom. And I, and I think it only happens through government regulation. Um, now, that's not going to fully solve the problem, though. I mean, it will solve the problem of cancel culture to a large extent. But it won't. what it won't do is solve the problem of a complete 
and growing loss of political diversity among the professoriate. Uh, that problem is caused mainly by political discrimination in hiring, promotion, and so on. Um, and it, it, it's operating beneath the surface at the level of departments and at the level even of uh, faculties. And so that is going to require something more. In, I, I, and I'm not sure whether government intervention, my favorite solution in this case is to say, well, I'm not saying affirmative action for conservatives, but what I am going to would say is you have to have uh, an equivalent degree of action on uh, ideological and political diversity as you have on race and gender and other characteristics. So if you want to do uh, race and gender diversity and, and equity, then you have to do political diversity and equity. If you don't want to do any of it, then don't do any of it. That's fine. Um, I think that would actually have a very big effect. I mean, it might mean that universities just back off on diversity and equity, but it could also mean they may make more of an effort to try and diversify their faculties, which in the social sciences and humanities, to give you some numbers, it's around 13 uh, on the left for everyone on the right in the US and Canada and about nine to one in Britain. And it's been, and, and it was at um, sort of about two to one, maybe, uh, left to right, if we go back to the 1960s. So there's been a big shift. It's not, yes, universities have always been left, but they are sort of something on the order of three to four times more left-wing, more left-leaning now than they were in the 1960s. Um, and so simply through that process of political discrimination, uh, hostile environments to dissenters, keeping out dissenters, keeping dissenters from even entering the university, they've been able to sort of create a monoculture, which then makes all of these problems much worse. So I, I, I guess my, and actually in the report, I polled what people thought about this proposal to actually, you know, should universities have to sort of make as much effort on political diversity as on race and gender and bipartisan agreement with that. So I actually think it's got quite a bit of support. Uh, but of course, it's, even in the UK context, that has not been mooted. I tried to get it uh, on the bill, but I, I wasn't successful. <laughs> um, we, we have had some proposals kind of similar to that, I think. Um, for example, there was a proposer to attach a rider uh, to the main funding title for universities through that funds student loans in the United States. And there was an attempt to attach a rider for even just for public universities that... Um, merely restated, actually, their obligations under the Constitution and under the First Amendment and said, basically, instead of waiting for somebody to sue you and going through court, um, you know, for fire or someone else to sue you, uh, there's going to be an immediate financial consequence um, if you fail to live up to these obligations. And that um, that writer did not even garner the support of the majority of Republicans in the Senate. So we, we really have a political problem, I think, here in terms of I, I think the Republican Party is just way, way behind um, even the population as to what kind of solutions are really necessary. Because I would consider that almost like a very mild, mild yeah. version of what you're talking about. It only applied to public universities. It's actually only restating um, ultimately the obligations they already have under the law. It's just attaching a more immediate consequence, that administrative consequence that uh, that you said actually has been effective in the UK, even talking about it has uh, has changed the tune of university administrators. 
Yeah, you're you're completely right. I mean, we have a similar political problem here in that, you know, like in the United States with the Republican Party, um, a lot of the policy thinking is still stuck in the 1980s and is still mainly about cuts and 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 it's still focused on universities as economic entities. Doesn't really focus on culture. And it's the same in the Tory Party. Very few of them are interested in culture war, or at least not many of them are. Um, and so they would rather think of, of universities in terms of, you know, the economy. Um, and so what this means is that when a proposal comes up to, uh, to something like, in, you know, proactively ensure that universities are upholding existing law, which is largely what the Academic Freedom Bill does, um, they, they will often see this in terms of, you know, bureaucracies versus freedom and, and, and get completely conned by the university lobbyists into sort of thinking this is somehow, ooh, this is regulation, uh, incredibly obtuse. Uh, so how you, you actually have to get a lot of these legislatures to understand that, no, this regulation is really about uh, protecting your side's freedom. And, and this is a very hard thing for a lot of them to understand. It's incredibly, incredibly frustrating. And a lot of them don't understand the kind of cultural struggle uh, that you and I understand is going on. They sort of still think of things in this sort of Reaganite 1980s way, but uh, they need to really start focusing because this is a long game. It, it's not enough to pass a law. Uh, you have to control the bureaucracy that enforces the law that issues the guidance. This is one of the things we're learning. Uh, you have to get your people who, who are committed to the mission into those bureaucracies to enforce. Even creating the bureaucracies alone isn't enough. You have to develop a whole infrastructure right back, a pipeline of candidates who are going to be suitable for these roles. And you're, you have to get your people in, control the bureaucracies, and then you can control, um, for, you know, you can enforce free speech. And, and so that's a three-step, at least a three-step process. It takes patient work. It takes planning. I think that's been in short supply on the right. They seem to think a few, a few uh, buzzwords, uh, a few sound bites, uh, maybe one piece of symbolic legislation is going to do the trick. No, you actually have to invest resources in controlling the full sort of value chain process, all the way from the policy network through to the who gets appointed, through to the bureaucracy, through to enforcement. Um, and so, yeah, I would say that that has to be seen as the challenge. Um, it's not going to solve, I mean, long term, ultimately, the cultural problem won't necessarily be fully solved by bureaucratic intervention, but it's a start. And also intervening in the curriculum in K-12 to teach about the importance of free speech, the history of the struggle for uh, free speech, the, the excesses of utopian movements and violating freedom, such as the Chinese Cultural Revolution, communism. None of that really is being taught, and therefore, students growing up now, they just don't have any understanding of the value of, of um, expressive freedom and freedom of conscience and these kinds of things. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think you're totally right about the bureaucracy. It's been kind of a lonely hobby horse of mine for a long time. But unfortunately, in the United States, that means serious congressional reforms, at least on the federal bureaucracy side, because currently, um, even when Republicans do, and not even getting to your pipeline issue, right, where Republicans right. don't have the pipeline of people who are necessarily qualified for certain bureaucratic positions, even if they do have those people, the bureaucracy is so um, sclerotic, and it's impossible to fire people. Like, I don't know how what the rules are, the civil service rules are in the uh, in the UK, but or in Canada for that matter. But in the US, it's it's kind of two things. One, we don't have a really strong meritocratic kind of civil service exam pipeline the way some countries do. So on the one hand, we get the most incompetent 
people. Right. Um, so not even from ideological perspective, just like completely incompetent in a way that if you have a really tough, actual meritocratic civil service exam, you you really you, you at least ensure some level of caliber of people. Um, but, but the second thing is you cannot fire. You, you just cannot fire bureaucrats in America. It takes about two years and there's a very, very short list of things that you can fire them for. And then the, the thing I always point to for people is that Congress, Congress had to pass a, an entire statute, a new law in order to fire bureaucrats in the federal government who are watching pornography on government time and government computers. Right. Cause that you couldn't like our system wouldn't allow them to be fired without an act of Congress. Um, right. so there's, there's a larger bureaucratic problem. I think maybe going back to American cultural, uh, mm. perceptions, right? No, no little kid in America, or at least very few grows up and wants to be like a <laughs> government administrator. And so you tend to get that, uh, right. like a lot of our, our like smart people go into tech or business or, you know, even a- in academia, but not, not sort of government administration. So we end up, I don't know if that has something to do with well, how atrocious our bureaucracy is. I mean, I wonder whether executive action plus um, the office of, of the president or whoever is the executive, or, or if there are new sorts of bureaucracies that can kind of be created that can more or less drive this. I mean, it is interesting to me that if you look at how organized the Federalist Society is and, and the whole uh, idea of pipeline into the Supreme Court, you almost need that level of mobilization and organization for a pipeline into uh, something like the bureaucracy or something like new bureaucracies that you'll need to set up in order to implement and oversee these sort of reforms. Um, it, it has to be as deliberate as that and as well-planned as, as it is for the Supreme Court nominees. Um, c- because otherwise, all of these institutions will naturally just drift left because those are the kinds of people that will uh, be gravitating to those jobs. And this is the challenge is you really actually have to actively swim against what is the natural tide. Whereas if you're a left-wing government, you don't have to do anything. You just let your more or less foot soldiers who are already in these institutions uh, go to town. You don't actually have to to campaign on anything. Whereas I think what the right is going to have to do is be much more sort of determined and much more organized in sort of setting up these pipelines and following through on them. Because otherwise, they're not actually going to be able to enforce their laws their laws will be frustrated by the agencies uh, that are nominally supposed to be carrying out these laws. So I think it, it, it's, it's again, it's a long march through the institutions back the other way, I guess, is what I would say. But it has to be, um, it has to be an intelligent process where uh, conservatives are getting into the fine detail of things such as definitions of harassment and definitions of transphobia and racism and getting into that policy detail is is going to be vital so for example with universities just cutting out the bottom few hundred universities is going to is going to have absolutely no impact whatsoever so talking about cuts talking about removing tenure all of that is is a terrible idea in fact removing tenure imperils free speech what you need to do is focus on the elite uh, sector particularly the ones that are that you can control uh, through public funding of various kinds, and start to get into uh, essentially trying to compel them to adopt policies that are compliant with things like free speech. Um, and that takes, it takes patience, and it takes stamina, and it takes kind of organization. And that's been in short supply. And, and I think it's the only way you actually start to push against the natural uh, momentum of these institutions, which is going to be towards 
wokeness and going to be towards safety culture. You, you actually are going to have to consciously, uh, in an organized fashion, push back against that. Yeah, you know, I think you're really right that the right underestimates this bureaucratic inertia, like vastly, vastly underestimates, you know, bureaucratic inertia as a force that has to be continually fought, right? Um, that requires, as you say, strategic thinking, and then usually a longer term ground game of actually anticipating that the, these, um, you know, bureaucracies are almost like living organisms, right? They, they, they move around whatever it is that you're trying to, if, if the, the dominant feeling um, or, or culture within the organization is against what you're doing, they're going to move around you and around a particular law. This is my worry, by the way, with on the K-12 level has been my worry with some of these anti-CRT bills. It's not that I actually have a, a or think that they're anti-liberal, like some some on the right have, have had that conversation is that they're worried they're too anti-liberal. I'm not worried they're too anti-liberal. I, I think it's totally fine to dictate to public schools what they should and shouldn't teach. I just think the bureaucracy Product inertia of these schools is going to, you know, it's going to get relabeled something else. It's going to get smuggled in um, via teacher trainings, via like a thousand other outside groups. And, and ultimately, the system will fold itself around the CRT ban in a way that is not currently anticipated. That's, that's my larger worry. And I really think we underestimate this kind of bureaucratic folding around of, of any objection. I think you're right, although I do think there are some success stories. I mean, here in Britain, the teachers strongly resisted kind of metrics and back-to-basics type teaching instead of sort of the progressive approach. Um, But with enough uh, focus, Michael Gove, who is in the government right now, was able to actually change that and was actually able to get them to, to to completely change their focus, do more testing, have more standards. Um, so I think it will work if you have enough committed people. And, and this is the other thing is that's this is one of the reasons why the Conservative Party in Britain or the Republican Party in the U.S., if you have too many people who are just in politics to be in politics or who are thinking only about tax and spend issues, issues which are really becoming less and less central for the kinds of politics that is emerging – if you look at the voting for major parties now, it's much less along lines of income and class, and, and it's much more around these cultural issues. It's about getting more politicians who are who are focused laser-like on these cultural issues, on the threat to the culture, to national history, to free speech, and so on. They have to understand that it's an emergency. It's not just a, a sort of fringe thing, uh, and the main meal is about supply-side economics or whatever it is. Um, and, and that's a, a challenge because a lot of the older generation in particular who were weaned on those 1980s battles against inflation and, and you know, that is their world. Uh, in Britain, it's, it's Thatcher worship. In U.S., it might be Reagan worship. But they are uh, – there are a lot of – the Tory party is full of these economic liberals, particularly in the older generations. It's very difficult. Now, there are some younger people, particularly some of the special advisors to ministers who really understand this. Um, but it's it's partly about also disciplining in the U.S. the primary process to make sure people are uh, have a good record on supporting um, this kind of activity and and are not uh, you know so so there are all kinds of situations where say Republicans are allowing universities to do what they want. I mean, I there's an example in the University of Texas where yes they have a bill they appropriated some money for a sort of conservative 
Institute within the University of Texas. Uh, but And of course, the University of Texas trustees are Republican appointees. The university itself is essentially blocking the ability of this institute to hire its own staff, saying, no, no, we have to be, our departments have to be in charge of the hiring. You're not allowed to do it. Um, the Republican appointees have essentially uh, kowtowed to the university. And there's nobody looking over their shoulder and saying, you just basically let us down and you're essentially part of the problem now. And no one's being held accountable. And that's an example of where the chain of command, the focus is not there. In, in, in It has to go all the way from the top of the party, the governor's mansion, all the way down to all the appointees. And there has to be accountability for these issues. Part of this, of course, comes from raising the profile of these issues and being accountable for performance on these issues. But I think there's a long way to go uh, in ensuring that that is the case. Yeah. And um, as, as you point out, the, the premise underlying that there's accountability is, is in, in, as your work shows, is that actually the American population is much more concerned about cultural issues than, say, the GOP politicians um, or their priority lists might be. Uh, you know, in, in the past, you've argued, for example, in White Shift in your book, um, you've, you've argued that some of the underlying tectonic plates of our politics are more related to demographic change or ethnic demographic change um, than we probably think about or would like to admit. But recently, at least especially in the last few years, we've seen the idea, and I know you don't make the argument that de um, demographics is actually destiny. You're more making the argument that they affect our politics and and um, they're kind of the, the underlying um, fault lines in our society are not unrelated to this. Um, and the way that people perceive politics or their cultural interests, for example, is not unrelated to race. But the 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 line that demography is destiny was popular on the left. It's like verboten to say on the right, right? That was a kind of the setup of our our politics on that issue for a long time. Um, but that thesis seems to be falling apart recently, right? We have huge swings in the Hispanic vote towards Republicans exactly on some of these culture war issues. We even have seen some movement potentially in the black vote, which would, which is one of the most like sort of bedrock <laughs> things in American politics is that, Dem you know, black voters are going to go 90 percent Democrat. We're even starting to see some polls like intriguing polls um, one after the other that are showing that, you know, maybe it's not going to be anywhere near 50 50 at any point in the foreseeable future. But, you know, if, if the black vote shifted to 20 for 80 versus 90, 10, that would be a tsunami in American politics. Right. Um have, have you like rethought or, or sort of um, rethought or, or rejiggered some of your arguments surrounding ethnic and demographic um, sort of divides in the U.S. now that actually, strangely, racial divides seem to be, even though they're very, very much in, in the media and in terms of like woke politics and the forefront of wokeism, they seem less important to our politics than they did, say, four years ago. Yeah, and you're, everything you said is absolutely right. That that the the actual uh, you know racial divides per se are not uh, central to the kinds of polarization that we're seeing in the U.S. I mean, they're there, no doubt. But really, polarization is primarily uh, a divide within the white population, and to some degree, other groups, but more intensely within the white population. The reason, though, that I think demography matters is. It's not the demography of uh, whites versus Hispanics and Asians so much as it is about the decline of ethnic majority groups demographically in the U.S. and other Western countries creates 
a, a sort of apprehension amongst conservatively minded members of those groups. So the people who for psychological reasons that are up to 50% heritable, by the way, prefer stability and order, they prefer the present to be similar to the past, they prefer, they see difference as to some degree disorder, not as stimulation. Uh, and that's, that's a fundamental psychological difference. So you have a a significant group of people uh, who are attached to their uh, to their you know majority ethnicity. They're attached to the mix of groups that they knew growing growing up. And they don't want it, that to change too rapidly. So that was really the point of the book, and that that fundamentally explains a lot of the voting for populist right parties, and including Brexit, including the Trump phenomenon. However, when it comes to divisions within the society. The division is is not between uh, ethnic majority and ethnic minority as much it is between uh, ethnic majority group members who uh, want slower change and less difference and ethnic majority group members who believe almost religiously in change and difference. And so it's an ideological divide, but the ideology that splits Republican, Democrat, liberal and conservative amongst the white population in the U.S., that ideology is strongly about your views on race, as well as other identity things. But it's racial identity, uh, your attitudes to questions that, that touch on race, such as immigration, for example, such as affirmative action, your, your attitudes on race, uh, that is the dividing line, not race itself, right? So uh, it's conservative attitudes versus liberal attitudes around these identity issues that's the dividing line, not race itself. Uh, and that's the, and so, so you can have the Hispanic black population moving in the direction of the Republican party, depolarizing the country on race, but that's not actually going to depolarize the country because really the country really isn't polarized on race. It's polarized on racial attitudes, which is a different thing from race itself. Um, and I actually think this is going to continue. Wokeness is one line definition I always give. It's about the sacralization, making sacred of uh, historically marginalized groups. That is the core belief system, the core the religion that, that uh, McWhorter calls the religion of anti-racism. And that's really what distinguishes the strong proponents of um, cultural socialism from uh, those who are more attached to, uh, for example, cultural liberalism and to ideas of traditional national identity. Um, so I don't actually see a reason to modify that hypothesis. I actually think those two forces are continuing to define polarization in politics. I don't think there's been any let up in that division, even as the racial, uh, the differences between racial groups has narrowed. If, if it's really... Um about an ideology and not directly about race or for example religion or at least classically conceived religion um you know is the solution if, if the solution in the academia context or at least part of the solution is is this kind of robust um retreating into the public right and, and having um actual public regulation of of concepts like enforcing concepts like free speech beyond the academy should we be thinking about actually something that conservatives are very, um, even including myself, I'm including myself in this, are very reluctant to do, which is expanding protected classes and categories. Um, let's say think, in, in, in corporations, should, should worldview, especially now since there's more and more people who are not attached to an organized religion and, and um, are agnostic or atheist, is, should we be thinking about protecting worldview as a protected category? You talked about kind of uh, 
not quite affirmative action for conservative professors and universities, but what about, say, in Nike, right? Um, well, well, I actually think that I, I would say yes. And my argument on this is you're not going to get rid of protected categories. That's a pipe dream. And so if you're not going to get rid of protected categories, uh, you have two choices. One, you stick with the categories that exist now, which which largely benefit you know, in a way, they largely push the culture in the direction of wokeness, as we say, it's certain groups only. Or you actually opt to expand the number of protected categories to include, in particular, political and philosophical belief. That's, by the way, in European law and um, and in Britain, uh, philosophical belief is a increasingly a protected characteristic after a number of legal decisions. So, believing that only biological uh, females are women uh, is a protected uh, belief now in the United Kingdom. There was a, an important case uh, that, that that came through recently. So you can't fire somebody who tweets, uh, you know, only biological women are, are truly women. You can't actually fire somebody like that now because they are expressing a philosophical belief that is protected. I, I actually very much support that. I think that it is I tend to favor individual liberty over institutional autonomy. So I think it's much more important for um, individuals to have their liberty than for institutions to have their liberty when the two are in conflict. If they're not in conflict, absolutely, let's have institutional autonomy. But um, I, for example, think that if you think about um, some small town business that wants to be able to discriminate against uh, Democrats, you know, there may be a few people who want to be able to hire and fire on the basis of political belief. Um, I actually think that's not going to matter at all in the direction of the culture. They don't matter. They have no power. These sort of biz small businesses, there may be a few of them that want to discriminate. To my mind, sacrificing that uh, to gain a, a an ability to actually hold a, a, a micro or a Google um, or or a New York Times or somebody else uh, to account for politically discriminating. I, I, to my mind, the much more powerful organizations are the ones that are that are engaging in this political discrimination. That's, I think, a much more important uh, thing to do is to actually um, to have a protection against political discrimination in these elite organizations in terms of the direction of the culture than to protect the odd person who wants to be able to discriminate against a Democrat in some small town hardware store. I mean, that, to my mind, is a much lower priority. Um, so in general, I would favor measures that would protect uh, people's right to express themselves without uh, losing their job. Then I, I would be willing to protect a business's right to discriminate uh, on the basis of politics. I, and I just think that the best way to actually reverse this is to lean into these protected categories and to just multiply them. I mean, you could even talk about neurodiversity if you want. I think trying to get away from just essentially race, gender, and sexuality dominated, which is the sort of dominant sacred uh, totems for wokeness, and to actually get to so that we have a conversation about a much larger set of different characteristics and and maybe start to blunt this sort of monofocus on these sort of big three holy trinity characteristics. I actually think that will help to dissipate some of this uh, sacredness and some of this, some of these taboos, which are really at the heart of the problem of, of free speech. Uh, yeah. What, one, I think uh distinction that would have to be fleshed out in any actual speaking of, of where the rubber meets the road and right. <laughs> creating policy and, and uh, in a, in a serious way would have to be somewhere distinguishing between the expressive 
um, and sort of ordinary course of business, right? Because it'd be, I think it would be, first of all, it would be contradictory to the First Amendment. Um, and and also just I would be very deeply uncomfortable as a small liberal preventing people, say, from expressing like you, you really don't want to force, for example, the like the Jewish painter to be forced to uh, use as a customer. Right. A Nazi who wants him to, to paint a glorious portrait of Hitler or whatever it is. Right. There has to be something about express expression versus the ordinary course of business, like holding a bank account or, um, you know, working in a bank and expressing views that have nothing to do with the job that you're doing um, as as a teller at a bank or something. That, that I think, would need to be flushed out in any actual proposal. But I, I do find myself more open to the idea of protected categories, certainly, than I would have been several years ago, where I thought, you know, that we have to roll these back. Because like you, I, I'm not sure that that's in the foreseeable future in the cards. Um, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. No, but the only thing I would say to that is I think there's a difference between someone who purposefully is a Nazi and purposefully goes to a Jewish uh, place to get them to paint them, and somebody who just happens to wander in. I think there's a big difference between deliberately targeting a, a place and making them serve you and something that is just random and accidental. I think the person is maybe going to be less offended if it's if it's random than if it's somebody who announces, hey, I am a Nazi and I'm coming to your show. I, I think that kind of distinction could be made. But anyway, I'm, I'm not a lawyer, so who knows? <laughs> Um, I, that would be the job of this pipeline <laughs> of people that you, you hope You're to try right, to create right. is to, to be actually uh, competent in making such distinctions in, in a workable way. But um, I can't let you go here without touching on this piece that you wrote for Unheard um, on the war in Ukraine, uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and uh, sort of the populist right taking positions that are at least in the plain meaning, distinctly unpopulist in the sense that they disagree with the large majority of Americans and, and actually, you know, continually we're now seeing polls that the base of the Republican Party, while, you know, any given intervention you might get, uh, you know, some people in favor and some people against, and it's hard to know how many people really, for example, know what instituting a no-fly zone over Ukraine would mean, shooting at Russian uh, directly <laughs> at, right. at Russian anti-aircraft or uh, defenses or, or so on. Um, but I, I do think that you highlight in this piece, there is this large out of step, um, like this gap that's <coughs> opening up on this issue between populist quote unquote intellectuals on the one hand, um, who have been very vocal and, and to my mind and probably to yours, right on issues like, you know, um, like wokeness, like well, all the things that we've been discussing demographics, they've been willing to say things that, uh, the establishment of the Republican party has not been not been willing to say that do reflect attitudes, for example, on immigration that are popular, um, not just in the Republican base, but in the country as a whole. Why do you think that sharp divide on this issue has opened up where now they are not reflecting, they're reflecting a very small minority of the American public now and even a small minority of the right? Yeah, I mean, this is sort of one of my frustrations because I, I really think that we need to sort of marshal all the political capital for these cultural battles and, and that the culture, cultural differences is really what predicts voting uh, 
far in excess of anything else now. Um, and so while someone like Tucker Carlson uh, was focusing on the excesses of these moral panics like the Covington Boys and Black Lives Matter protests and uh, the crime waves and 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 the border um, doing an excellent job saying things that, that, as you say, a lot of the establishment, even a lot of Fox News hosts wouldn't do. So he was sort of a a very important uh, voice speaking truth to power in a way and and, and expressing uh, sentiments of a lot of Americans. But then I think what happens with some of, of populist elite voices is that, first of all, they seem to have bought into um, what I would consider neo-Marxist grand theories around some sort of shadowy elite, uh, a globalist elite that is somehow trying to sort of uh, advance its own interest, material power interest by uh, springing uh, wokeness on us and that somehow anyone who is opposing that globalist power interest is a good guy. And so it might be an authoritarian like Putin. Oh, well, Putin is opposing uh, this globalist cabal that is imposing the rules-based new world order on us. And, and it's very much getting into completely unsubstantiated, drifting so far away from facts and evidence and what really matters to voters and people get sucked into these big theories. I mean, they has, it has a lot of appeal to intellectuals and a lot of uh, a lot of the populist intellectuals are drawn into these grand theories and, and drift away from the concerns of their base in a way. And that's sort of my frustration. And it leads them to make these enormous blunders. It leads them to feel sympathy for what is a, a cruel and vicious autocrat. I mean, Putin has been poisoning people, assassinating people, invading countries. I mean, this is not a nice person. And the other thing I would say is there's also a, a muddling between liberalism, uh, which which I would support, which, which classical liberalism, which is about, you know, free speech due process, um, people having rights in a constitution that aren't trampled on by the government, and sort of cultural what I would call left modernism, valuing diversity and change over, say, tradition and, and national identity, uh, for example, uh, that is not the same thing as protecting individual liberties in a constitution. And it just seems to me that a lot of, or some of these populist commentators have sort of allowed their hostility to this sort of, which I understand the hostility to wokeness and some of the cultural left modernist expressions, what I would call also cultural socialism, to bleed over into hostility to procedural liberalism and constitutional classical liberalism. And so someone who opposes all of that, like a Putin, becomes a good guy. So I just think it's sloppy thinking, it's opportunistic, and it's sort of emotional and, and kind of, it's partly caused by the kind of rabbit hole that some of these people went down. And, and I would say Steve Bannon was amongst the worst. Every time you hear him talk, it's always about uh, economic and political things and class, a very Marxist type analysis, which actually is not what motivates most voters. Most voters, they don't want critical race in the classroom. They don't want wokeness. They, they want to control the border. I mean, that's what motivates them. And all of these other grand concerns, these sort of big foreign policy issues, and this is just much lower down their list. And somehow for a number of populist intellectuals have just been sucked into, in, into sort of getting behind that. And I think they've lost credibility as a result because they're very much on the wrong side of, of uh, an issue like Putin. Um, well, I think you're right to say that it depends how far back you want to draw the critique, right? Um, it's, it's, there seems to be a, a divide between people who essentially say the last 30 years or so there has been a consensus on policy that's developed that has left out 
the views of a large majority, especially the cultural views of a large majority of the right, and then even some of the center and the center left, um, and that we should realign our politics around some of those issues that have now become critical. There, there is, of course, then the critique that the liberalism, the classical liberalism of America, the constitutional structure of America, actually, like the critique someone like Sarah uh, Bakhmari, for example, is, is going to go all the way, or Patrick Deneen, um, is going to go all the way back and say, essentially, no, the, the kind of classical liberalism that you're championing inevitably leads to something like wokeness, because it, there is a, a vision of the good in the public square um, that, that the procedural liberalism doesn't allow, essentially, the, the people who have a more conservative vision of that common good to fight um, in, in that public square on the same way that the left does. So they see it as inevitable. Um, and I think you're right. That that's part of the, the reason they, they see like a challenge, an autocratic challenge as something that's more viable than, but, but I mean, I don't think the average American thinks that, you know, right. Putin's autocracy is, is actually that, you know, they don't want critical race theory in their schools. That's not the yeah. same thing as thinking that the entire, um, American liberal order is worthless. Um, so I think you're right yeah. that there is a, a big gap there. It's interesting, though, that you you say that they've bought into too much of the, the class structure stuff. I myself uh, maybe disagree with you here. I I think there has been a marriage between class structure. Um, and again, as a conservative, I wouldn't be using these terms that do sound very Marxist uh, on some level five years ago. But I think, the, for example, the advent of the woke capital phenomenon has really made me reconsider whether there is a marriage of economic structure and a kind of cultural monopoly or, or um, uh, sort of undifferentiated worldview among people. I'm not, I'm not so much worried about the 1%, yeah. but the 20%, right? What Burnham called the managerial class, the people who have gone to universities, who have, you know, sucked up that academic um, worldview and then, but who it seems to be the same class of people who are running the HR departments in Nike and who are at the DOJ and, and Republican and Democratic administrations who are in academia, right? Even who are mm. district administrators in K-12. I think there is a structural class attachment or merging with this, with the cultural issues here. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I'm, I, I'm sort of a quantitative political scientist. So I've done a lot of analysis of voting, for example. And one of the things you see, first of all, is that income and employment has almost no impact on who you vote for. Um, and so, so now education does, but education is more cultural, right? I mean, a lot of well, you know, a wealthy plumbing contractor is not likely to be a liberal Democrat, for example. Uh, but perhaps a poor librarian might be. Um, so education is more tied to cultural worldview. What I would say is that whatever the prestige values are in the society, the elite class are largely going to get behind them. So if those prestige values was temperance and staying away from alcohol for religious reasons, then the elites would get behind those values. If the elite values are wokeness, they'll get behind those values. I, I think that it's the culture change that comes first and the class stuff is largely about uh, it, it largely comes second and there's the, max weber a sociologist has a whole theory about this that essentially the person switching the track switching the train from one track to the other is culture once you switch the track the train will move down another track so i think what comes causally first is culture change 
And then all of the, the incentives for prestige and power and wealth will just sort of follow in the wake of that. Um, and that's why I sort of think that it, it's really getting at this mind virus of the culture uh, and shaping that that's got to be central. Now, it's not to say, yes, now, of course, there is some correlation between income and class and beliefs in these. But but let's not forget that most of the variation, for example, in voting is within class. So um, if you take college-educated Americans, uh, college-educated white Americans, something like 50% of them vote for Trump, 50% of them vote Democrat, you know, that's 50%. I mean, it's a large share. It's not, it is certainly a higher share of the non-college-educated that are voting for Trump. But let's not forget that is it a, it is a quite significant share of college-educated, let's say, white Americans who are also voting for Trump. And so the only point I would make there is that education, yes, it's the most important factor, much more important than class. But even education is nowhere near as important as psychological, cultural orientation. What do you say to a question like, things in America were better in the past? You know, that is vastly more important than anything class-based or structural. So I would say for my money, I guess class, I think, is just a much less important factor overall. These cultural forces and ideas are largely orthogonal to class, not entirely, but largely. So I think a class analysis, I guess, in my view, is not going to explain much of what's going on. I, th I think the mechanism, maybe the, and I'll, I'll have to think about this some more and maybe read read some of the... Um, <laughs> the work that you're referencing in terms of the, the explanation of variance of voting. But I, I do think that the class structure and really the, the sort of professionalization structure uh, that is really tied to the growth of universities and the much larger percentage of people get, you know, getting a degree. Um, I think it makes it easier to ignore some of those issues that you exactly are were championing here, right? Saying basically there's going to be a certain percentage of people who are, are very uncomfortable with the pace of demographic change, for example, due to immigration. Um, I think the reason that that an issue like immigration can be have huge majorities in favor of either keeping the immigration levels the same or even reducing them. Um, and and then both parties can ignore that issue for 30 years, I think there is a class structural element to how that happens, right? Because you would think that in a democracy, this would bust forward earlier than Donald Trump, right? Um, that, that you couldn't go 30 years with both parties ignoring a concern like that. And I do think that the, the professionalization and class structure and class hardening in America has a lot to do with how an issue like that goes ignored for 30 years. But um I want to just wrap this up here um, by asking you a question that's that's perhaps hopeful because I think <laughs> I think uh, although I always say that this podcast is a safe space for pessimists, but um, <laughs> if 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 we do manage to con somehow control or reverse the institutionalization of wokeness, right? Um, and if if the right does all the things that I'm skeptical that they're actually going to do in a serious way, I mean, what what does a sort of post woke politics look like? Um, not just in the U.S., but maybe in the U.K., the broader sort of Western world. What does a post woke world look like? Yeah, that's a really interesting question, and one I'm hoping to tackle in my next book. But so I'll give you an example. Um, let's say you're putting on a play at a theater. I mean, my own my view would be. Um, a post-woke world, you'd have a lot more plays that were focused on historical authenticity, for example, uh, which might mean that if you're doing a play about 17th century England, you would have very little ethnic diversity in that play. 
However, you would still have some modern interpretations that would run as a minority of shows and that would be set in the modern time that would have an ethnically diverse cast and so on. So you would you will have some of the uh, the sort of woke innovation, some of the cultural socialism will still survive, but it will just not be centered in the culture the way it is now. That's kind of the way I would tend to see culture in a post-woke world. So you, yeah, we're going to talk about some shame in the, in the national past, but we're going to center the achievements of, of the national past. I mean, that would be, for example, another kind of, of, of uh, accommodation. So it's not like I'm saying absolutely no uh, consideration of representation and cultural equality at all. I'm saying, yes, we're going to have some, but it's going to be decentered. It's not going to be the focal point the way it is now. It's not going to drive everything. It's going to be actually a minority, not zero, but it'll be a minority chord within the symphony. So that's sort of how I would envision a sort of post-woke uh, culture operating. And similarly, when it comes to free speech, there will be, yes, clearly it is the case that uh, being three foot three is is a and blind is a tougher set of cards uh, to to get than being of normal height and being able to see. So you're going to actually have to treat people not exactly the same. You're going to have to accommodate to some degree uh, privately. So there is going to be some kind of cultural socialism. It's a bit like the welfare state in in capitalist economics. But again, the point that I would make there is. That isn't. That is going to be one factor. E equality and and whether you punch up or punch down is going to be one value alongside a whole set of other values, such as freedom, such as beauty, such as social cohesion, and a whole bunch of things which are currently being submerged by a culture that's heavily focused only on equity. So what I'd say is equity will be there, but it'll be one of five things, and and so that's sort of how I would tend to envision this. Uh, yeah, well, that that jives very well with something that has bothered me for for a long time, which is we really do seem to live under the tyranny of exceptions in a lot of ways. Um, and I think that's maybe part of what you're saying that we need to. De it's not that exceptions or or outliers don't exist, but they they can't govern or be centered in the entire conversation when we have, for example, public policy conversations, or we have a conversation about what it is to be American in some like more basic sense, or what it is to be British, or whatever it is. Um, well. Thank you so much for for giving us an hour of your time, Eric Kaufman. Um, where where can folks read more of your work? Thanks, Ines. Yeah, I mean, you'll find my work on my website, which is uh, www.snaps.net. Um, and um, yeah, please check me out. I'm also on Twitter at E-P-K-A-U-F-M. Um, thanks very much, Ines. Thanks again for coming on. And thank you to our listeners. High Noon with Inez Stepman is a production of the Independent Women's Forum. As always, you can send comments and questions to Inez.Stepman at IWF.org. Please help us out by hitting the subscribe button and leaving us a comment or review on Apple Podcasts, Acast, Google Play, YouTube, or IWF.org. Be brave, and we'll see you next time on High Noon.